Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in for the Sabin Millennial Podcast, a community dedicated to ambitious and successful millennials. And today with us, we have Andrew D'Souza. He's a co-founder and CEO of ClearBank, the largest e-commerce investor in the world. ClearBank has invested $1 billion into over 2,200 e-commerce and software companies. They use data science to identify high-growth funding opportunities in less than 24 hours. They have also recently launched a free valuation platform to help founders understand what their businesses are worth. ClearBank was also recently named number one on LinkedIn's 2020 top startups list for their fast growth, innovation, and caliber of talent working for the company. Andrew started his career with McKinsey, and prior to ClearBank, he was also a CEO of Top Hat. He's raised hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital funds and is also an advisor and investor to multiple companies in tech ecosystem. And with that, please welcome Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for finding time. I guess, first of all, how are you? I'm doing well. I feel like I'm getting into a bit of a rhythm in this COVID work from home isolation world. So better than I was a couple months ago, for sure. Crazy. Well, it is months four now. And is it getting better? Is it getting more stressful? Bye. I think it's getting better. You know, I think it's funny. I feel like at times I'm doing some of my best work. You know, I think just having some space and capacity and just like clearing my head and I'm, I feel like I'm doing, I'm much more creative than I had been. One of the things I realized is like, probably never in my career have I finished a meeting and then nobody knows that I'm finished. So if I finish a meeting early, like I'll walk back to my desk usually. And then like people will be like, oh, what about this? And like people will chat with me in between. Now I get like five or 10 minutes to just think and reflect. Even in, in the office, I found if I had an idea that I wanted somebody's opinion on or feedback on, I would just sort of look around and be like, okay, who doesn't look busy? Let me like bounce it off of them. Now I'm much more intentional. I'm like, oh, actually I could use Kent's advice, or Charlie's advice, or Tanai's advice, or Michelle's advice, or whoever. So I can actually like be much more intentional about whose opinion I solicit at what phase in my sort of like creative process. I miss the social part of, you know, being in our office and, you know, the energy and culture of our company. But in terms of productivity and creativity, I feel like we really unlocked something. It's crazy. Okay, now question. Do you find that you wake up in the morning super early and get straight to work? And then after the day's done, you just keep working? Or do you have the balance where you set the routine time set to do something else outside of work. Yeah, I wouldn't say I've figured out the routine particularly well. <laughs> yeah. I try not to book super early meetings. And so then I don't, I try not to like have to set an alarm. So if I wake up on my own, great. And then I'll try and get a workout in or like, I actually got an Airbnb in Little Italy in Toronto, because I found living in our condo, like a giant box in the sky, which was like getting in the elevator with a mask and all of that stuff was like exhausting. So I wanted to have like, somewhere where I could be outside and stuff. And there's a basketball court not too far from me. So I'll like, bring a basketball, I'll shoot some hoops. Sometimes I'll even take a call on the basketball courts. I'm sure people are, who are on the phone with me or like hearing a ball bouncing or whatever, but I'll try to get a little bit of exercise in in the morning. But if I had a really late night or I needed extra sleep, I'll just sleep in and then, you know, just get ready and end my first calls. I haven't done a good job of ending my days, right? So like I try yeah. not to book super early stuff, but at the end of the day, I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, you're kind of obsessed with your business anyway. It's not like I'm like working my way through a to-do list. It's more like, I get to like six or seven o'clock and I have an idea and I'm like, I should either like open up a document and start writing it or make a phone call and like brainstorm with somebody. And I don't feel like it's a burden, right? It's actually kind of fun. Maybe my team who I call feels like it's a bit of a burden, but uh, hopefully they tell me if they did. 
Yeah, no, I like it. I think it's very similar to everyone else. We're just trying to figure it out, adjusting. And I mean, a lot of people who have kids are trying to figure out how to manage that because you can't go anywhere. Everything is canceled. So uh, I'm learning lots. I find that I'm doing a lot of courses. I'm doing this. So you find things to fill up your time with. To jump into things, for those listeners and uh, people who are watching who don't necessarily know what ClearBank is or are not really sure what you guys do, could you give us a little bit of a background and how you started? Yeah, so we started about five years ago. My background, like, like you mentioned, you know, I studied engineering and worked at, uh, in consulting for a bit, and then I helped build a few startups. And I was born in India. My parents moved to Chicago, actually, for a couple of years on a visa. And then we couldn't stay in the U.S. after my dad's, like, you know, three years was up. And so we either had to move back to India or move somewhere else. So we ended up moving to Canada with really like no network and no connections or anything. It's actually funny as I think about my parents and like now you would never, like you wouldn't even move like to a different, you know, city in the same country without like knowing your job and where you're going to live and all of this stuff. And like back then people got on a flight to a place they'd never heard of, like they'd never been to, didn't know anybody, no job, like, you know, six weeks of like living expenses or whatever, like, like, like literally be like, oh, we'll figure it out. Anyway, so I moved to San Francisco after spending a couple of years at McKinsey and did a couple of startups uh, between San Francisco and Toronto over the last 10 years. And part of my job was always raising capital. I would lead go-to-market like sales and marketing teams. And then I would have to spend a bunch of my time meeting investors and raising capital for the companies I was part of. And just like how inefficient that process is. You know, you've got to build a list of like 200 investors and then take three months off to basically just run a process and, you know, fundraise. And it's a very emotionally draining process because you hear no and the reasons why your idea is terrible and never work over and over. And so I think, you know, our goal at ClearBank was for all of history, the people with the money got to decide what got built, right? Which castles, which roads, you know, which university research projects got funded, which companies get, get built. And if we can do a little bit to sort of shift that balance of power and say, actually, the people with the ideas and the people that are taking the risk and the people that are putting in the work and putting in the effort they should probably have a say in what gets built and what the future looks like. And capital at the end of the day is kind of a commodity. And so can we use the data that comes out of these systems to actually help unlock capital for people and take what was a, you know, scarcity, you know, as you think about the way that venture capital works, it's a scarcity mentality. There's only so much capital available. There's only so many spots in a VC's portfolio. There's only so many board seats that a partner can sit on. And so it is a very much zero-sum game for founders that are competing for that asset. Whereas what we think, you know, in today's world, we could have an abundance mentality around capital. I heard a stat that like, we produce three times enough food for, to feed all of humanity, you know, like perfectly, but there's still half of the world that's, that's starving, right? I think very much the same way about capital. There is enough capital to fund every good, ambitious idea out there appropriately, but we're very inefficient at distributing it and so you see some companies that are get way overcapitalized and many companies that are starved. I wouldn't say we've cracked it, but we've got a seam into unlocking that, you know, at a much bigger scale globally. So that's basically what, you know, what the mission of ClearBank is, is to help founders win, unlock capital, help them make better decisions with how to allocate that capital. And we do it in a way that you don't have to give up equity or ownership or control in your business. Um, we do it on a revenue share. You also don't have to take on debt and add leverage or a personal guarantee or whatever else with your business. And so um, it sits somewhere between equity and debt, which allows us to do it incredibly efficiently and without a lot of the bias and the headache associated with it. I love it. I love the idea. And I read, I mean, I think it was an article that you guys been really good at funding uh, female founders, especially yeah. in Canada and the US. And one of the biggest founders, I guess, capital providers right now are you. 
Is that true? <laughs> yeah. In total, we funded about a billion dollars to 2,800 companies. It wasn't an intentional effort to go out and find female founders or find minority founders. It's just when you take out the barriers of meeting an investor. So you had, you know, if you didn't go to the right school, you didn't go to the, grow up in the right neighborhood, you didn't, you know, know the right person. It's hard to get your foot in the door. We've removed that. And then, if your product doesn't resonate, if the investor wouldn't buy your product, it's really hard. But there are a lot of people. You know, we funded. There's a great story of a company founded by a black female entrepreneur. It's scrunchets for curly-haired women. They have a specific need for like a specific type of like scrunchie and. Nobody knows it, you know, Patagonia vest wearing VC would ever be like, oh yeah, I get this problem. I want to like invest in it. But it's like, she's got a wildly successful business. We try not to pass any judgment on the product or the solution. As long as you can find customers that want your product, we're happy to continue to help propel you forward. I love it. So during COVID, would you say you're busier than ever right now? Yeah, no, it has certainly been busier. And yeah, we've been fortunate, like, you know, we do, our process is all automated. You know, if you talk to somebody, you're talking to them over the phone or Zoom anyway. And so we've always been able to operate globally in a remote environment. And so our process hasn't really changed. But I think for a lot of other investors and banks and folks, you know, they've really had to adapt. And so a lot of people have pulled back. There's been a big need in the market. And, you know, fortunately, we, we fund mostly online businesses. So e-commerce, SaaS companies, businesses that find their customers online and deliver their, their product or service online. And so those companies are doing well. You know, there's a lot of demand for online products and services. And so, yeah, we've been in a fortune position. We're just sort of trying to keep up and scale with it. It's certainly been an, an adjustment for us to operate remotely, but you know, we're, we're figuring it out. Well, and I think your role right now, especially in the ecosystem with COVID and the slowdown of the economy is very important because the e-commerce grew, I think in three months to the same level as it would have 10 years. And exactly. a lot of VCs and private equity firms and banks are now shrinking their pockets trying to figure out what's going to happen with the companies and their portfolios. You're kind of the only funder out there for a lot of those e-commerce startups that are growing really fast. Yeah, I think I'm not obviously not like happy about COVID or anything yeah. and the like suffering and misery that it's caused and the economic suffering. But I do feel fortunate that we're in a position to help a lot of companies who otherwise had nowhere else to turn to. You know, we're just trying to adapt our system to be able to do that even more at scale and work with companies that are transitioning from primarily offline or primarily wholesale to building you know, their e-commerce brands and their, their direct-to-consumer relationships. And that program is working incredibly well. It's been a little bit of a silver lining and you know, we've had to learn how to adapt and scale in, in this environment too. So it's been a fun journey for sure. It's uh, not going to stop anytime soon. So now on this journey, you guys collect a lot of data, information, you see a lot that, you know, we don't see and a lot of other institutions probably see later on. What is the billion dollar idea coming up? What are the trends that you're seeing right now that are picking up and we all should be paying attention to? I think what's going to be really interesting, I don't know, like specific product ideas or whatever. In e-commerce in general, I think what's happening is Probably for the first time in history, every country in the world, right? Every region and every country in the world has now accelerated their e-commerce adoption uh, simultaneously. That is really, really interesting because that was unlikely to happen, you know, in any other situation. And now, if you've got a great product, your opportunity is finding the pockets of demand everywhere they, they exist in the globe and figuring out how to go serve that. That is one, you know, for the general opportunity for e-commerce entrepreneurs. The other one that I've always been really passionate about, this is the reason I ended up joining Top Hat. I'd done some work with the Khan Academy. My mom was born in Africa. She was a teacher there. My grandfather was a teacher there. And I think that what's going to happen to education is going to be fascinating because 
I, you know, for maybe a decade now, we've been talking about a bubble in education, especially higher education. You see the student debt rate in the US, we're not much better off in Canada. I mean, I think we're, we're better off, but it's still like, you know, people end up paying off student loans for decades. So I think there's a real question around, you know, in September, people are going to be, you know, new freshmen are going to school, but they're doing it all remotely. And you're like, well, what am I paying $40,000 a year to or $10,000 or whatever for content that, you know, is it really the best content out there? Like, you know, I'm really getting the best education. And I think it's going to force a real reckoning around a shift to what is the best way to teach this content globally, right? Because now we're not limited by the capacity in a classroom or on a campus, right? And so I think we'll start to see people design their own educations with what are ultimately sort of free resources. Employers are probably going, I think it's already happening, but there's, there will likely be an acceleration to people not caring too much about the credential, caring much more about the work product and the capabilities and the character of the people that they hire. And so I think there's a massive opportunity in, in rethinking education, helping people navigate education based on their own passions, their own objectives, their own skills without taking the traditional path of, you know, I apply to a university and I do what I'm told for four years and hopefully I get a job. I totally agree with you. I mean, uh, somewhere, maybe it was Forbes, um, they were talking about how by the end of five years, if you take a five-year route to finish your schooling, by the end of the fifth year, the knowledge that you learn in your first year is going to be outdated. So that's the unfortunate part about the school education. Now, the question for you, if you had to go to school now or you had a choice, would you? Would you go to school as a freshman starting September? I probably wouldn't. What'd you do? I would try and build my own curriculum. Like I studied engineering at Waterloo and we had some really bad professors. And so I remember taking, like MIT had the same courses. And so I would just not go to class and just watch the MIT course and then go and write the exam. And I did well in the exam. And so I was like, what did I pay for? I basically took the MIT version of the Waterloo course and then wrote the exam. You know, I think what I would do if I was 18 and starting school, I would probably try and build my own curriculum. Like, what do I want to do? What are, the, what are the sort of areas that are most interesting? I'd try and meet people who are in those fields. I got a lot of value out of from Waterloo as a co-op program. So I'd try and design my own version of it. I'd be like, okay, I'm going to learn these skills. Then I'm going to put them into practice. Then I'm going to figure out what I liked about that, what I didn't, what I'm missing, and then go back and learn more, more of those skills. If a resume like that came across our desk, of like somebody who'd spent like three or four years building skills, working, you know, taking online courses, carving their own path, like I would 100% interview that person. It's a very scary prospect for people entering the workforce now. But I think there is a group of very self-confident and ambitious and creative people that I think will will carve the new path for what education means. Good old grit and perseverance. How do you figure out what you want to do? What if I, you know, I'm 18, 19, I also did a call program. But it took me a while to figure out what I'm good at, what I would like to do, because sometimes there's idea of, you know, it could be good at a lot of things. How do you yeah. narrow it down? Yeah, you know, there's a really good paradigm. I, I stole it from one of our data scientists uh, who actually just left to go start his own company and I'm thrilled for him and I'm waiting for him to let me invest. But I, I got some of my, my best management-isms uh, through just conversations with him. He taught me about this idea of like a Venn diagram. It's really, really hard to be the best at, one thing, right? It's really hard to be the best, like, you know, pianist in the world, right? But if you can just be better than most people, if you can be in the top, like, 25, 30% in two or three things, all of a sudden you're the best at one thing. And so one of the exercises is actually like, 
what are the things that you love doing that most of your friends would think would say you're good at, right? Like you don't have to be the best. You don't have to be the best in your class. You're just like better than average. And if you can layer on three or four things, right? So like you could be good at like math. You could be good at like music. You could be good at sports, right? And you could be better than most people at those things. Or you could be good at like, you know, writing, right? You could pick a few of those things. And the more narrow you can define it, the easier it is for you to be better than most people at. And you're like, hey, if I could spend a lot of my time improving this one thing, right? If I love writing and I could spend, you know, four or five hours of my day every day improving my writing, like that would be a good life. And if I could combine writing with athletics, as you start to shape that, you're like, oh, I might be the only person in the world who's in the top 25% in these four things. And as you layer on more and more of those, uh, you build this sort of Venn diagram. And then it's just about like, hey, these are my four things that I'm going to, like, I love doing, I'm good at, I'm going to commit to improving and just find a job that needs those four things. And you'll have a very successful, very like happy career. And it's hard to define those and, and they will change over time. And it's hard to find that exact perfect job but at least that you sort of break down the process. If you look at the most successful people in the world, they're people that were good at two or three things, right? Bill Gates was really good at software development and he was very good at selling. There's a small overlap between people that are good at both of those things. And so he was wildly successful. So you think about those people and that's the path to like success and, and often like career fulfillment and happiness. Love it. So then what should people do who are right now obviously finding themselves on the other side of the pandemic, unfortunately losing their jobs and uh, need to figure out a new path, but don't have the luxury of time to play around with, you know, different concepts, need to really dive in. What should be their strategy? It probably doesn't take a lot of time. We're fortunate, obviously, like in Canada, we're fortunate that we've got um, a really good safety net and, and things to help people during this time. But it really is like, can you write your own unique story, right? It's like, okay, here are the things that I love doing and here's the evidence of it. And here are the things that I'm really good at and here's the evidence of it. And then just kind of pitch that story as often as possible, right? Basically say, look, here's my unique diamond in this world. Where does it fit? And the more people you talk to uh, about this and, and the more unique you can make your own story and everybody's got a unique story, right? Everybody's got a unique combination of skills uh, and passions. The more people you bounce that off of, the sooner you can kind of get, you continue to refine that story and, and then, you know, opportunities will start to emerge. If the story that you're pitching is one dimensional, right? No human being is one dimensional. And so if you're pitching yourself as like, hey, this is what I do, right? I'm a banker, I'm a waitress, whatever. Like, you're like, well, there's thousands of people who are that, right? But if it's like, oh, I'm this, but I also have a podcast, you're like, oh, cool. Like, you know what I mean? Like, those, like all of a sudden you're like, oh, I get it. Now, like I get a bit of a picture of like you as a 3D human being. And now I can think of, oh, I've got a friend who's actually looking for someone, you know, who fits exactly that mold. It doesn't need to take a lot of time. Um, but I think like the more you can paint yourself as a complete person and a 3D human being, the faster you find uh, a good fit and you, and you stick out in people's minds. I like it, the 3D human being. I'm going to use that. Now for the skills, um, is there a skill or maybe a skill set that everybody no doubt should have in 2020 going the post-pandemic times? What is it? this is one of the skills that I'm trying to figure out is as a leader, figuring out, out how to communicate in a compelling way and inspire people and, you know, get alignment in a remote, like in a zoom world. I think zoom leadership is going to become like using the internet or like word processing, like that, that ability to communicate and convey an idea remotely will be an incredibly important skill. And it's one that I, you know, didn't really come naturally to me. Like I love when we do, 
you know, all hands or we do retreats as a company and I can get up in front of people and I can feel the energy and I know everybody's got a shared context. Now, you know, I'm in front of 200 people every day and everybody's got their own things going on, right? Some people have their kids, some people are outside, some people are distracted, some people are drinking. Like, it's like, you're like, what's going on? And it's really hard for me to get the feedback and I feed off of that. And so that's been an adjustment for me that I'm like realizing I have to go work on uh, is like how to be an effective, how to translate the things that made me an effective in-person CEO to an effective uh, remote CEO. So have um, you figured it out? What are the tips? I haven't figured it out. I think, I think what I've gravitated to is just like not make it feel like a presentation as much as possible. Like just try and bring, bring people into a conversation. I'm actually thinking about like, I don't know if it's the podcast format, but something like this, which is just like me chatting because I have a lot of like interesting random conversations with people in the company about ideas and the vision. And part of the way that I shape that is like through these conversations, but I'm trying to figure out a good way to like, without being awkward, record them and then play them for the company, right? Be like, look, if you want to see the development of a strategy or an idea, listen to me talking to four or five people and you'll figure out how this idea has evolved from one point to another. Because that's the stuff that I think like people want the context, right? Why are we going in this direction? Why did we change this? Why did we make this decision? And it's, a, it's through a series of discussions that happen. So I'm still trying to figure it out. I also think writing, actually, this is the other one. I think written communication is going to become incredibly important because a lot of decision-making and a lot of collaboration is going to ha- start to happen asynchronously. And so people that can't effectively communicate their ideas in a written asynchronous format are going to be at a disadvantage. I've noticed that it's actually a really, really difficult skill to find in today's world. I think we've, we've gotten to the, like the text message, like emojis. Like, emoji. Yeah, exactly. We've gotten into this world where like laying out an argument in a, like a one page document or an essay or, you know, a paragraph that, that is readable and makes sense is a rare skill. And I think the people that have that or work on it will be very effective. I like it. So then I guess to jump back into your experience, you've raised hundreds of millions of dollars in VC space for different companies. Now that process is obviously going to be very different because now people are not meeting you face to face. Nobody's really meeting anyone in coffee shops. So how do founders find capital, equity capital these days? And what are your suggestions dealing with no's, dealing with no responses? And what's the strategy to get the yes? you kind of have to have a very thick skin when you're raising capital. So my process, and I've done this now a few times, is like build as big of a list as possible, you know, at least a hundred, probably more names, try and find warm introductions to all of them. And then basically set it up so that like within a four to six week process, you're having all of those conversations and moving everybody along at the same pace. In a pre-COVID world, we used to travel. And so it'd be like, hey, I'm going to be in San Francisco this week. I'm going to be in New York next week. I'm going to be in Boston next week. Toronto, like sort of did that. Now you're at a bit of an advantage because you can do all of those meetings at the same time and you can bring everybody along at the same time. The other thing is you can record yourself and play it back. Michelle and I, my my co-founder and partner, pitch together. We walk out of every meeting and give each other feedback. I'm like, did you say this? And like, no, I didn't mean that. And like, now you can actually go in and say, how did I do? Like, let me break it down. Let me get better every pitch. And so, you know, that's one of the advantages that the founders have is like, they can really break down the pitch, how they answered questions, the questions that are continuing to come. And so I think there's some things that you can use, you know, really to your advantage as a founder. I think the real challenge is just most investors are just not wired to make investment decisions without meeting somebody in person and shaking hands. That's kind of their problem. They're going to have to find another investor. 
Yeah, like that's, you know, there's, there's a lot of old school people out there that are just going to be lost because they're not going to be able to get comfortable. They're not going to be able to actually assess, you know, the fundamentals of a business or a founder. But yeah, I think it's, you know, try not to waste your time on those and try and work with people who can be a little bit more forward thinking and modern and, and open-minded because I don't think we're going to be back in that world anytime soon. Now for the person, I guess for you, Andrew, the investor, what are you looking for when somebody approaches you with a startup? Like one of the employees who's quitting to start their own company. What yeah. does the person need to have for you to say, you know what? That sounds like a great idea. Let me invest. You know, it's really hard because every personal investment that I've done has been when I've known somebody. And they really like, it doesn't even really matter the idea at that point. So if I've worked with somebody and like they tell me they're starting a business, I'll be like, okay, I want to invest but that's hard. If somebody cold emails me, I'm not going to build that level of trust and confidence with them that quickly. And so I don't know if I've ever written a personal angel investment check to somebody I haven't known for like years, but I'm not a professional investor. So that's not my job. And that's why we started ClearBank was like, that's not an efficient way to solve the capital problem, right? We've got to actually look at data and fundamentals and things like that. And we're working on new products to be able to do equity-like investing for earlier stage companies that, you know, again, based on, on the data and, and things, you know, I think if you're approaching professional investors, it really is about like, do they see the opportunity or, you know, or do they see the size of the market? Is it a big enough market that is ripe for disruption? It's less about, is your initial idea the killer idea? Is it more about like, you're exactly the person that should go solve this problem and you care enough about it. You've got enough of an insight that, your initial idea will probably change 10 times, but you care enough about solving the problem that as soon as you hit a wall, you're going to figure out a way around it. That's what you've really got to try and convey. It's hard to do in a shortened period of time, but as, a, as an entrepreneur, I think it's one of the, the most important things to get across in, in meeting investors. This is perfect. Well, thank you. I hope not everyone is going to email you right away for the next <laughs> couple of years to build the connection, but this is a perfect answer. Now, a little bit of a pivot. How do you personally manage stress and anxiety and deal with the pandemic right now or in general at work? You know, I think there's a couple of frameworks that I've been working on. One is this idea that like happiness is a choice. If somebody hands you a glass of wine at the end of the day, a long day, you're like, oh, thank you. I'm very happy, right? It's like what I wanted at that moment was exactly what I got. And then you're happy. If it's like first thing in the morning in the middle of a workout and somebody hands you a glass of wine, you're like, what the hell? Like the same like, like situation it doesn't make you happy if it's not what you want at that moment. And so if you can define happiness as getting what you want in that moment, in like the specific moment in time, then you can also choose happiness by wanting what you have, right? You're just like, if you decide to want what's in front of you, then like, you're just happy. You're just like, Hey, I just decide to want this, right? I decide to want like this time, you know, uh, to reflect, or I decide to want this like pain of this workout, or I decide to want this feeling of hunger. Like, like you could actually just be like, Hey, this is what I decide to, to want right now. And once you've actually made an active decision, you're like, okay, well, I'm great. Like, this is good. I'm happy. Uh, and so that's one of the things that I've been working on. It's not like, I'm not perfect at it, obviously, but I'm not happy all the time. But when I find sort of like some displeasure, I'm like, well, what's my situation? Can I just choose to want it? And what part of it can I choose to want? And that's been one of the things that I've been working on to manage sort of this stress and like feeling of helplessness, I think, in today's world. I love it. I actually, I do something similar, but my mantra is everything here is there to help you. So if something exactly. happens, I'm always asking, okay, it's here to help me. Now I just have to just figure out how, where is that silver lining? Like, what is it helping me do? And uh, usually find something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If you dig hard enough, you can find something for sure. Now, in terms of routine, well, now you try to wake up without the alarm clock. 
Do you have a routine? Do you not really have a routine? Every morning you try to do the same thing. I've been eating a lot of granola, which I don't think is actually as healthy as like it's marketed to be, but I'm enjoying it. I'm what kind of granola? Some. We might as well do a plug right here. I've got Love Brunch now. I had like some Nature's Harvest or something. Like whatever looks interesting. Uh, it's got some chocolate. It's basically candy in a bowl with like some almond milk. So I'm not one that, that like has a great routine. I'll be honest. I tried working out in the morning first thing, which was, which was a pretty good routine. But sometimes like if I have a late night, I miss that. I tried to meditate, which was actually pretty good. But like it's hard. I like got pretty ambitious. I was like, okay, I'm going to wake up super early and I'm going to meditate. Then I'm going to work out. You know, I got off of it. So I mean, look, I'm not, I don't think I have that level of discipline to be able to do everything. I think it's more like, hey, you know, if I wake up, great. Like <laughs> already I'm winning. Uh, and let's just be thankful for that and, like, and, and go from there. That's what I usually say when I pick up the phone, like, how are you? I'm like, I woke up. So the day can only get better from now on. Now, what about the weekends or personal time? Like, is there something you do specific to take time off work, take your mind off work or not really? You know, I try, yeah. Like I try and play basketball. Uh, I bought a, I bought a bike. So I've been biking around. I bought a ukulele. I've been learning some songs on the ukulele. That's like my, yeah, it's my new toy. It's actually been fun because I've been catching up with friends, at least at the beginning of COVID, like friends who I haven't seen in a long time who live far away. You know, I've got cousins all over the world. I've got friends in New York, San Francisco, London. So I've been like trying to find time to catch up with all of them. Like honestly, one of my favorite things to do, this is why I love Toronto, is like I just walk around like pretty aimlessly. Maybe I'll put on a podcast and I'll just wander around the city you know, walk around the park or walk around the neighborhood and stuff like that. And like some of my best ideas come from just like walking. I'm actually like, I feel like I'm more creative when I'm walking than, than stationary. If I've got a real hard problem to solve, I'll just walk. And then, yeah, I've been like trying to catch up with people, meet people in the parks. I'm actually enjoying that too. Like you can order takeout and go to a park. It's like way less intense than meeting somebody for dinner at a restaurant, right? You don't have to show yeah. up at a certain time. It's like, it's kind of like, you know, people can come and go as you want. Anyway, that's probably not a new thing for most people, but I'm like, oh, I would actually prefer this than making a reservation and having a fixed time. And then once you're done eating, you kind of have to leave. Like our, some of our social norms around like how we get together. Why is that? You know, in this way, everybody can get whatever food they want. If you're going to the park, everybody yeah. can take out of whatever. You don't have to decide on exactly. one restaurant to sit at. So it's kind of good. I like it. Now, in terms of tips of Catching up with people on Zoom, FaceTime, I've had real trouble just trying to even have a conversation over Zoom time when the first wave of COVID hit. You know, you get to that awkward point or sometimes you try to have more than five people on the call and it just doesn't work. Any tips there for anyone who needs to, you know, get better at this? Yeah. I mean, look, Zoom fatigue is a real, is a real thing. I heard this great article where they talk about like, one, you can't make eye contact, right? So you can never, right. you're always... Like, is that person shifty? Like, can I really trust them? And then these little, like, micro-expressions. Like, if I make a joke and then you don't react right away because there's, like, a little bit of a delay, and I'm like, oh, she doesn't really like me. You have all of these in your, in your body, and then like, you're looking at yourself. And like, what do I look like? Your brain is spending so many cycles just trying to figure out, like, why are my jokes not landing? Why is when I make a statement, they're not reacting? Why aren't they looking at me in the eye? Why do I look weird? And so it's exhausting just from a mental uh, standpoint to, to keep that. So what I've tried to do is as often as possible, take phone calls, like just do it as at least intersperse my day between Zooms, really, if I have to see people, if I'm meeting somebody for the first time, I'll, I'll do a Zoom, if I have to share a screen or do like go through a presentation or a spreadsheet. But for the most part, my one on ones, I'll just, you know, put it in headphones, go for a walk around the neighborhood. And that helps break up the day quite a bit. Because yeah, you're right. It's like, 
We're not quite there yet. I'm looking instead of the camera. I'm looking at your face because I, I need to know, are you smiling? Are you laughing? Are you doing gestures? Are you pointing? I'm just staring at the camera. I can't see you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they should design like a Zoom video with like a little camera in the middle, right? Right. It would make sense. Such an easy idea, it seems. Okay, so now you said you're listening to podcasts sometimes when you go on walks. Yeah. What is the podcast? What are the resources that you consume? Books, anything you recommend? Read The Culture Code recently, which is really good. Either It was either Ray Dalio or Culture Code or one of these books. But they talk about your culture or your values are really what you tolerate. And I think this is actually really important in today's world, right? Like as we're talking about you know, systemic racism and like all of the problems that, that are happening in the world that have happened in the world. And at some point you're like, well, this isn't my doing. There's two concepts that I've been reflecting on. One is the difference between responsibility and blame. We have been conditioned to think about if I take responsibility for something, it means that I'm taking blame. And if I wasn't to blame, then it's not my responsibility. And I actually think those are very different concepts. We may not be responsible for COVID. We may not be to blame for COVID. We may not be to blame for anti-Black racism. We may not be to blame for social inequality. It doesn't mean that we can't take responsibility for those problems, right? Responsibility is a choice. You can go in and say, look, this may or may not be my fault, but regardless of that, I'm going to take responsibility to do something about it. And by choosing not to take responsibility to do something, you're effectively sort of condoning it. I see this stuff happening you know, in our company and it's like, oh, well, somebody said something that was rude. And I'm like, by not stepping up and actually taking responsibility and you know, saying, hey, we don't tolerate that in our environment, you're effectively condoning it, right? And you're effectively saying like, okay, well, now I support this and this is, you know, I'm contributing to the culture through inaction. It's an interesting paradigm for a company. It's an interesting paradigm for society. And if we all take responsibility for the values and, com- and culture of our company, we can do the same thing for our society. And it doesn't mean that we're to blame for the problems, but it does mean that you know, it's our choice to take a responsibility for them and, and do something about it. Those are some of the things I've been thinking about. I've also been, been reading or listening to Naval's podcast. And if you know Naval Ravikant, he's the founder of Angelist. He's like one minute podcast. So a lot of interesting topics. That so sort good. Of together, but you know, it makes you think a lot. So yeah, there's a few of those. Yeah, I actually like the idea of the one minute. There's a few creative addicts, I think. So there's a few one minute or snippets of one to three minutes. And um, I think Alexa Skill or Alexa Briefings, that's what they're triggered uh, on Alexa. They're trying to create a lot of those one-minute snippets where while you're brushing your teeth, you can listen to something that's not a 40-minute episode with a lot of things. It's just one short minute, something, either a piece of information or news that you consume. What do you think about it? Like, is the world shifting towards a very short attention span? And is that where we're going to go instead of a 40-minute episode? It's going to be small snippets. I don't know. Unfortunately, probably, right? It feels like we've been conditioned to that. Like, you know, we went from 30 minute TV segments to like five minute things to like two minutes, like 15 seconds, right? Like on TikTok or whatever, like, you know, our attention span is shifting. And I mean, even in this, in this conversation, like we've, we've had a long conversation, but it's really like a bunch of, you know, small concepts, right? That we're we're chatting about. I mean, I think that's probably the way that things are going to go. We're going to get very like small sort of snippets as a primer to a bunch of different ideas. If you hit something that resonates with you, then it's like, I want to know more. Let me go deep. And let me actually go investigate you know, much further. I think that's probably the way that learning and development is going to happen. So, yeah. I like it. Now, how do you learn best? Like, where do you find your news, your concept, strategies, ideas to dive into more? This is one of the challenges in, in like a remote world is I find it through conversation. 
I develop my own ideas through talking through with them. And I learn a lot by hearing other people's ideas and opinions. And so um, it's like maybe very, very old school, but it's just like through discussion and conversation, I learn much, much more than reading or listening. Listening to some stuff I think is helpful, but yeah, if I read something, like I want to read it, have somebody else read it, and then us talk about it. And like that is a hundred times more powerful than me just reading about it and thinking about it. That's my style. I don't know if it's auditory or verbal learning, but like... Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a bit of both. I like it. You should start Andrew's Thoughts, like a channel. Yeah, exactly. It'll be, it'll be good. It'll promote some conversations. Now, the biggest lesson that you've learned over the past 12 months. I think this idea that like humanity is like pretty adaptable. We thought that like whether it was an economic crisis or pandemic or whatever was going to shut a bunch of things down, but, but we've sort of like navigated through it. I mean, the U.S. is going through its own stuff, but I'm sure they will, they'll come out the other side in a strong position as well. But I think for overall, people have figured out how to adapt both from like a mental standpoint and from an economic standpoint and from a health and survival standpoint, we've just sort of adapted at a very rapid pace. Large institutions and organizations have figured out how to go online and digital. You know, people have figured out how to get sort of social interaction and nothing is going to be the same as it was. And some things are not going to be as high quality or as rich as they were, but like we filled those gaps and we figured it out. I think there was a time where we were all like, Oh, this is going to be like six weeks and we'll be back to normal. And so everybody just held their breath for a while. Uh, and that was stressful. But then once, <laughs> oh, I think maybe this is the new normal. All right, let me just adapt now, right? And, and like, once you realize there's a new normal, we've figured out how to, how to just adapt to it and make our lives work around it. And I think that will unlock a ton of possibility in terms of where people can work, what types of projects people can work on, where you can hire talent, where those people can live. When you start to shift into the possibility instead of the like downside mitigant side of sort of this pandemic, it gets pretty exciting. No, I totally agree with you. Now, do you think that a lot of people, or I guess almost every person, needs to create their own, let's say, solopreneurship, not necessarily entrepreneurship journey, but something on their own, considering the fact that it seems like large institutions potentially are going to start hiring people who work remote, and it'll create a lot more people who are freelancers. What do you think about this? Yeah, I think you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but like, I think it's important for everybody to create their own story and write their own character in their story and tell that story. Right. And like, there's two things to keep in mind. And I think this is one of the, like, especially yeah, we're talking about a millennial, millennial podcast. It is very easy. And I think it's a very millennial trait that we all have to feel like we are the central character in everybody's story. But in reality, we're an extra or a secondary, a supporting character or whatever in Six billion and nine hundred ninety-nine million, whatever, like stories, right? Everybody's the central character of their own story, and you're a secondary character in everybody else's story, and that's okay. But if you're going to be the central character in your story, like make it a really rich, deep character, and make sure that as you're telling it, people get it and they resonate with it. I don't know if everybody's got to be an entrepreneur or a solopreneur, but like, don't be a robot, right? Like, you know, be a person. Multi, multifaceted 3D human being. I like that. Yeah, exactly. I truly believe that, you know, in 10 years, there will be a huge shift into online platforms and virtually everyone will have some kind of actual need to be on the platform. Like basically having a website for yourself where you list your kind of like, you know, your resume, but online. Right. Basically yeah. the videos and things that you're doing and hobbies just to show everyone that you're not just a, a robot doing the systems. Yeah. 
question, if you could go back in your journey, what would you do differently? I probably believed the story that there was a career path. There was like a path to success. And it was like, okay, do this, then do this, then do this. And then eventually it worked way up. And like the people that I admire and most successful people just learn very early that you could just take the shortcut. Like, you, like it was just like, I don't need to climb a ladder to achieve what I want to achieve. I can carve my own path. There's this great cycle between the stuff that I enjoy doing and that I'm good at, I'm going to continue to invest in and it's not going to feel like work and I'm just going to continue to do it, and do it, and do it and get better at it, better at it, better at it and enjoy it more and more to the point where the stuff that feels like play for me feels like work for everybody else. And once I'm there, you win. I didn't get that until pretty late in my career comparatively. So I think that's one of the things that I wish I'd learned a bit earlier. What made you jump out of that mindset? What happened? I moved to San Francisco. I met the founder of Slack when they were still building a game called Tiny Spec. I met the founders of Instagram when they were still building an app called Bourbon. Like I met the founder of Dropbox when like they were just still getting off the ground. And you kind of meet these people and you're like, wait, they're no different. Like they didn't have a master plan. They just like saw something, they saw a problem, they wanted to go after it and solve, they got it wrong a couple of times, then they got it right. But they didn't like put in the hours and like, you know, put in the time and work their way up to like eventually build a skill. And like that probably opened my eyes a little bit that like, hey, there's actually a shorter path here and maybe more fun than I think the story that we're all told for a lot of people. I like it. So now what about this hunger that you have inside you to build something great? Because that's basically why you're building things and investing and advising. Would you say it comes from within or would you say that it came later on, you developed it? I've always loved building. That's why I studied engineering. Like, I love building and creating stuff. I love like working with my hands and like, I love like all of that stuff. But I would say, you know, ClearBank specifically has been this idea that like, I think founders are going to change the world, right? And whether that's like massive, massive, you know, solving climate change and solving like healthcare crises and education or creating a product to live a happier life, right? Or provide for their family or be an inspiration for their community and creating a business and creating jobs or whatever. Um, I think the solving a lot of society's problems, you know, social, economic, macro, are going to be solved by entrepreneurs way better than they are, you know, coordinated governments, especially in today's world, right? And so if we can do anything to help shift the balance of power in favor of founders and having lived that and having lived the capital raising, you know, challenges and navigating that, you know, that was really a big part of the mission. Can we help more founders win? Can we help them be more successful? Can we give them, can we level the playing field a little bit, you know, in their favor? That's been sort of the mission and like have fun doing it, right? It's like, can I enjoy the brainstorming? Can I enjoy this like process of launching new products and being a bit irreverent when we can and have fun with it? So that's been the journey. That's what keeps me going. I love it. Okay. Well, on this note, as promised, every guest who comes on, we ask three questions. A millennial is, a millennial should be, and a millennial is not. I've got a it. A millennial is. I think a millennial is unnecessarily insecure. I like it. I, we haven't yeah. had that before. Okay. A millennial <laughs> should be. Should be confident without being arrogant. How do you do this? It's exactly this. It's like recognizing that you are the central character in your own story and you're a secondary character in everybody else's. And everybody's story is as important as yours. You know, this is one of the, we're going to go a little bit off topic, but I was talking to my parents this past weekend and we talk a lot about like privilege, right? And I was like, oh, well, I don't have privilege because like I, you know, we didn't grow up with anything and like, you know, I had to, I had to like work my way through school and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, I don't really have privilege. But then I think about like, I have two incredibly supportive, loving parents who like set me up 
with like, I think a healthy dose of confidence. They're like, well, you can do whatever you want, but like, you don't deserve anything. You, you're not entitled to anything. Nothing should be handed to you. You've got to work for it. And it's, I think it's a really hard balance for a lot of parents to get right, raising children. And I'm like, that's a pretty big privilege. And it's, again, it's taken time and I've probably ebbed and flowed through my growing up and through my career, but there's nothing that I, I don't think I can't accomplish. Um, there's nothing that I think is too ambitious or too difficult, but I also don't think I deserve anything. And I think that's a very, very hard balance. A lot of us millennials sort of like, will cycle wildly to like, the world should just bend to my will versus, oh, I'm like, I'm just a victim in this like giant world and I have zero agency. And I think modulating that a little bit to actually I can control a lot of my experience in the world and how I choose to experience it and how I choose to feel about it. But I actually can't control everything else that happens around it. And I can choose how to, how to react, how to respond and how to take responsibility for things. So that's the goal, I think, for millennials who, who have grown up in this like weird internet, social media world uh, where either everything revolves around you or nothing does. I love this answer. This is, this is perfect. And thank you for the explanation. Okay. And the millennial is not. A millennial is not lazy. This is one of the biggest misnomers by Gen X or whoever is like, oh, millennials are just lazy and entitled. Every millennial I know is incredibly ambitious and can be incredibly driven. And especially when they find their lane and they find their like passion and they find their like their zone of genius, they can accomplish a ton. But I think there's this idea that millennials are an entitled generation, which is totally false. I agree with you. Well, where do people find you? Where can um, we connect with Andrew? You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn, Andrew D'Souza on both of those. And then I'm at ClearBanks. You can email me, Andrew ClearBank, or you can just sign up on ClearBank if you're an entrepreneur and access capital, ClearBank.com. Love it. And then Andrew's thoughts coming, coming soon. Yeah, New coming channel. soon. Exactly. Exactly. New channel. I will take that inspiration. I love it. Well, thank you, Andrew, for being with us for the whole hour. Thank you. It was awesome. Awesome. Great to see you.